You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the second lesson in the ICU's course on the norms of Catholic faith, Scripture, Tradition, Magisterium. In this second lecture, we're going to be talking about Revelation a little bit more. We touched on Revelation in the last lecture. In this lecture, we're going to get into a little bit more how it is that we can know what God reveals and um, try to understand how it is that God reveals His, his uh, plan to us and Himself to us. First of all, in the last lecture, I made real clear that what God reveals to us is mystery. The mystery of who He is, the mystery of His plan for our lives. It exceeds our understanding. We can't fully ever grasp it. So if you say that, how is it that we can say anything meaningful about God? Well, there are two ways to talk about God, given the fact that God is mystery. One is called the via negativa, and that means the negative way of talking about God. This is the easiest way to talk about God. And here is why. Given the fact that God is mystery, it's easier to say what He is not than what He is. It is easier to say what is false rather than try to describe adequately the truth about God. Let me give you an example of that. How is it that you can explain the fact that God is one God in three persons? How is that? Well, it's a lot easier to explain how we shouldn't understand the Trinity. It's a lot easier to point out the heresies that have come throughout the ages and say, no, that's not right. You know, for example, some people said that there really isn't a Trinity, a permanent Trinity. There really, God just, the Father is all that there is. But see, what happened was he was born in the world as the Son. And while he was in the world, we call him the Son. And once he dies and raises from the dead, he comes back as the Holy Spirit. So there is only one person. And there are many Christians who believe this. There are some Pentecostals who believe this. No, that's a, that's a very old, old heresy called modalism. And that goes way, way back. And there's an image that some people have tried to use that's really a modalistic image, you know? Try to explain the Trinity like water has three forms of manifestation, ice, steam, and liquid. Well, that's perfect modalism. Heretical image. Can't use that one, okay? Now, here's another thing you can say God is not. You know, we use the shamrock as a, an image of God, and that's okay, as long as you understand that it's not a really good image of God as three in one, because the shamrock has one thing that has three parts to it. The three persons in one God are not parts of God. Each person in the Trinity is fully and entirely God, divine. Okay, so that doesn't work. So there's a lot of things you can say don't work. A lot of heresies, and that's one of the value of the heresies that come up throughout the ages, is it shows us what is not the case, what we shouldn't believe, okay? On the, on the other hand, there is a way to speak positively about who God is, and that's called the via eminentiae, okay? That means talking about the, the, the beautiful things in the world, the good things in human nature, and looking at them and jumping from them to the goodness of God. That's valid, but... It's always dangerous because we always can box God into human excellence and limit God to human excellences that we know about. 
Okay, that's the danger of it. But it's very powerful, and that's the way God speaks many times to us in the scriptures. He takes examples from human life, and he says that God is like, he is like this. You know, for example, God, when we speak of God as Father, we're taking a human excellence. We're thinking of a good father, all right? We're thinking of a father being loving to his children, providing for his children, being strong, you know, the strength of the father, you know, taking care of the child. We think of the father disciplining the child, caring enough to tell a child when he's wrong and punishing the child so that, so that that child grows into a mature and good person. Those are all things about fatherhood that are good. And so when we talk about God as father, he's not a physical father. And he's not, you know, he doesn't have all the limitations of human fathers. Okay? He didn't need a wife to bring us, you know, to be our father. But so there's a lot of things where he's not like a father. But, but there's certain wonderful things about fatherhood that we see in the best fathers in the world that show us something about what God's like. So that's, that would be talking about God in signs and symbols and images that are analogies. Okay? Analogies. Just like a father takes care of his child, so God takes care of us. Okay? Those are the kinds of things that we do on the positive side. But the thing is, you always have to understand this analogy of being, looking at the beings of the world, and then take, going from them and their excellences to God, saying something positive about God, that's called in Latin, analogia entis, the analogy of being. And the problem you know, the, 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 why do we do that? Because God created everything in the world. God created fatherhood. God created uh, the, the love between husband and wife. God created all the realities of this world. He created, you know, the animals in, in the world. And so, you know, we talk about sheep and the way shepherds care for sheep. And, the, the, you know, the, the, there's excellences in all creation that are traces of God because he created everything. So that it is a validity in looking at the world and saying something about God. But there's certain limitations. Everything is a creature out there that we can see and touch. And creatures are very different from the Creator. Creatures are dependent beings. God is totally, totally not in need of anybody and not in need of anything. So we always have to keep this in mind. And this was taught by, it's in the Catechism, if you look at number 43 in the Catechism, but it actually comes from the Fourth Lateran Council way back in the 13th century. Be, for between creator and creature, no similitude can be expressed without implying a greater dissimilitude. Now, we don't usually use the language of similitude and dissimilitude today. So, to translate that, it just means this, that there's a greater difference between all creatures and God than there is a similarity. Because God is transcendent. He far surpasses every created thing. If you put a line between God in the world. You know, even the angels would be on our side. They're creatures. There's more in common between us and the angels than there is between God and the angels because God is uncreated. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. There's all sorts of magnificent qualities of God that we don't have time to talk about in this course. It'd be in another course when we talk about uh, the theology of God and the Trinity. But in any event, you know, God is transcendent. And so everything we talk about in this world is we have to just keep in mind that any analogy we make, any example we give, it always limps. All analogies limp when we're talking about God. Okay? So, as long as we're humble about the things we say about God and realize the limitations of the images, it's great to use images. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let me just say, why is it that God reveals himself to us? What is the purpose of revelation? 
Okay, we have the content of Revelation, the triune God and his plan for our life. What's the purpose of Revelation? It is salvation. And salvation means an intimate relationship of friendship between us and God. Salvation doesn't just mean that we're not going to go to hell, you know, and that we, we, can, we can avoid hell. The positive reality of salvation is we have an intimate relationship, a life-giving, transforming relationship with God that begins here and lasts forever. So we share in God's life. That's what salvation's about. Okay? Transforming union with God. And a great scripture to look at this and meditate on is 2 Peter 1, 4. We've been made partakers in the divine nature. The Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Catholic churches love this scripture and emphasize this a great deal. And the Second Vatican Council made it a point to, to use this scripture many times to talk about what it is that God is after in revealing himself to us. Okay? This, there's a document in the Second Vatican Council that I'm going to be re talking about a good deal in the course. It's called, the short form of, the, of the, the name is Dei Verbum, the Word of God. The long form, official form of the name of the document is the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. It's Vatican II's teaching on scripture, tradition, magisterium, and just revelation in general. It's a wonderful document. It's a short document, and you're assigned to read it if you're taking this course for credit. But if you're not taking the course for credit, I'm urging you to get a copy of the Second Vatican Council documents. So few Catholics, even clergy, very few have read the documents uh, themselves and, and read, read them even more than once. As many clergy have, you know, and many professors even haven't spent enough time in the documents. But, you know, Dei Verbum was written as well as the other documents of Vatican II, they were written for a general educated layperson in the Western world to be able to understand. You'll be surprised if you haven't read these documents just how rich they are, how chock full of scripture they are, how often they can just help you in your prayer life. So I encourage you, make sure you read that document. And here's what Dei Verbum says. The purpose of Revelation is, quote, that man should have access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. In other words, that we have a personal relationship with the triune God. That's what the purpose is of Revelation. Now, let's talk about the manner of Revelation. How is it that God went about revealing himself to us, who he is, his plan for our lives, in a way that we could grasp, given our limited minds and given the fact that he is so transcendent? Let's talk about that for a minute. The Vatican Council II in Dei Verbum says that God revealed himself over the course of history in words and in deeds. And those words and deeds are bound up with one another. The deeds lend credibility and power to the words. The words interpret the deeds. It's very simple to see this when it comes to a number of things in salvation history. Jesus' miracles, their deeds, they reveal who he is. The wedding feast at Cana reveals that he is more than just another guest at the wedding feast. We actually celebrate that miracle when we celebrate the Epiphany in the Western Church because it manifests, it reveals Jesus' glory. John, in his Gospel, the fourth Gospel, talks about the miracles of Jesus as signs. Yes, Jesus cares about the people that he gives the loaves and fishes to. He wants to satisfy their physical hunger. Yes, he cares about the physical health of everybody he heals. But these things are also signs that reveal who he is. They lend credibility to his words. They reveal who he is. He does things that only great prophets in the past have done, 
like Moses and Elijah and Elisha. But he does things that no one has done, only God can do. And that shows that he's God. Many times, Jesus, you know, in the New Testament, it's very rare. There's only four places in the New Testament where Jesus is unambiguously called God, the word God. But he constantly, in his deeds, are, he's revealing himself as God. When he walks on the water, when he forgives sin, many times. Okay, so deeds are important dimension of revelation, just like in normal human life. It's not just the I love you's that speak, but it's the actions that we look for to review, you know, for, to see if a person is really loving their family, loving, uh, you know, a significant other that they're courting, you know. So deeds have a lot to do with revelation of, of who person is and what he's really up to. So you, you take a look at Jeremiah. It's fascinating as a prophet. Jeremiah oftentimes does... He goes out and speaks a word, but he illustrates it, like the time he had a yoke on to show that the yoke of the Babylonian king was something God was placing on Israel's shoulders. Okay? Look at the prophets and look how many times they used deeds and they acted out what they were preaching, like Hosea marrying a prostitute to show how God was in a relationship with Israel that was breaking his heart because of the prostitutions of Israel, but how he would take Israel back anyway and forgive Israel and accept Israel back as his spouse. Well, that was lived out in the life of the prophet Hosea. So, words and deeds, both. Okay? Now, what's the initial revelation of God? Where does he initially reveal himself? It says in De Verbum 3, in the Catechism, number 54, it says that the world is the, the, the initial revelation of God. When you look out at the world, and this is part of apologetics, you see the goodness of God. You see the majesty and the beauty and the providence of God. Okay? Now, the second revelation is the human person himself. When you look at human beings, you can see in the human soul a reflection of God. Now, the problem is that because of sin, we fail to see God in creation. We fail to see God in the human person. And so we need uh, uh, something to help us see. And what helps us see is Scripture, salvation history as recorded in Scripture. In fact, the fathers of the church a lot of times talked about the three books where we could read about God. One was creation, nature. Second was the human soul. Third was Scripture. But reading Scripture made it possible for us to read those two other books. Beautiful little image of the three books. But that's the way we see things. And let's talk about salvation history. Because without salvation history, without God revealing himself throughout history in words and deeds, we really wouldn't be able to see, as, as well as we need to see, God everywhere in creation and in people. How is it that God decided to reveal himself to us in words and deeds? Well, first of all, God's a good communicator. And any good communicator knows that no matter what you have to say, you have to say it in the language that your audience is going to understand. There's a lot of, uh, many of people have, have heard great professors and great intellects who can't communicate for nothing because they, they, they speak incomprehensibly. They use the vocabulary no one understands, etc. You know, being a lecturer and being a communicator are two different things. Well, God is a great communicator. He invented communication. He invented speech. He invented words. He invented deeds. So God is a master communicator, and so he, he decides when he is going to express himself and reveal himself, he's going to do it in a way people can understand. So he's going to adapt his message to his hearers. And that's part of the magnificent humility of God. The divine, eternal word enters history and becomes temporal human words and human deeds. And even before Jesus is born, thousands of years before Jesus is born, the incarnation is prefigured because God's eternal word becomes human words. 
magnificent mystery. So it's a parallel to the incarnation. Now let's say something about historical conditioning. Okay, A lot of people in the last 200 years realize that things in the past that were said and done are very different from things today. Now that may sound pretty crazy. You know, that, like, you know, why, why would Professor D'Ambrosio even say that? I mean, that's, that's apparent to everybody that things in the past were different than they are today. But see, that's not always been the case. In the Middle Ages, when people thought about Jesus' time, they painted pictures of the nativity and, and other things in Jesus' life. And the people all had on medieval costumes. You know, the soldiers rode horses. And, and, you know, people look like Europeans and not, you know, people of the Middle East because they really had no way of knowing how things were hundreds and hundreds of years ago. They didn't have archaeology, you know. There weren't illustrated books from the past. There weren't any recorded video and audio tapes from the past. And it was really archaeology about 200 years ago that helped people to realize how different people lived in the past, okay. And nowadays, the, the problem is a lot of times we'll just dismiss the past. It may be a curious place to visit. We like to see movies about the past and escape from our present reality, but we feel like the past has nothing to, to, to say to us that makes a claim on us, that our world's so different today. You hear this a lot with sexual morality. You know, people say, you know, all the Christian restrictions on, you know, sexuality, that was in a bygone age when they didn't have birth control and stuff, and that's why, you know, you couldn't uh, sleep with anyone but your wife and you couldn't have sex before marriage and all this kind of stuff. So we don't need to be bound by that, bi that old stuff in the Bible today because we're you know, more sophisticated. We have a different world today. We have birth control and all these things. Well, th that's called historicism. When you look on the past as having no normative claim, as just a museum, that's historicism because you believe all truth is relative and truth changes through time. Okay, so I'm not saying that and the church, that's really something that is incompatible with the understanding of the church and the doctrine of the church. Okay, so the past is something to take seriously. However, we do need to understand that what was said in the past has a context and we need to understand it in terms of that context in order to apply it today. So the past is historically conditioned. There are historical things that have an impact on the way people spoke 2,000 years ago. The issues they were dealing with, yeah, that did impact the way they spoke. There's a style, there's a way of speaking, there's a certainly an actual language that's different from our language. So we need to understand, if we're going to understand the past and let it speak to us, especially the past that speaks to us about God, we need to understand the context. So the eternal truth is expressed in historically concrete way, in a limited way. And the, the fundamental meaning is eternally valid, but it's expressed in limited human speech. That's part of God's humility again. So that's the way we, we, we need to look at this. There are some folks, fundamentalists, whether they be from Catholic or Protestant backgrounds or Muslim backgrounds, that want to just simply take things completely literally from the past and, and live them today. And you see a lot of Christian and religious sects where people even try to dress like people dressed hundreds of years ago. That, that is uh, denying the historical conditionedness of, of the past that it's different. There, is, there are differences that we can't bring forward now. There's eternal meaning, but it's wrapped up in ways of speaking and ways of living that, that don't mesh with, with things today. Okay, so there's a balance that we need to have, and the church has that balance in its way of understanding. Okay, so let's take a look at 
a, a little bit uh, at one particular issue that's extremely important to understand. It's important if you're going to understand revelation. And it's also important if you're going to understand sacraments. And that is understanding symbol and the way symbols and, sim and symbolic speech and metaphoric speech work in human life. This is really something that philosophers have looked at. This is just uh, you know, natural knowledge now. This is just the way in which human beings work. We need to understand this way in which human beings work if we're going to understand the way in which God speaks to us, because He speaks to us in human language. Okay? There's a, the signs and symbols, which are a special kind of sign, have a very powerful impact in human life. We use signs and symbols all the time as opposed just to abstract words and abstract speech. We use them constantly because signs and symbols do things that abstract words don't do. All right, let's talk about a symbol. A symbol is a kind of sign. There are some signs that aren't symbols, like an exit sign over a door. That exit sign delivers a very simple message. Get out here. This is the place to get out. Stop sign. It's supposed to mean that you come to a full stop at that place. Of course, it doesn't happen that way all the time, but that's what it's supposed to mean. That's all it means. That's it. Okay? But a symbol goes beyond just conveying one little bit of information in a visual way. A symbol, like a sign, any other sign, is concrete. It's not an abstraction. Okay? That stop sign is concrete. You can see it, right? And symbols are concrete, like the Eucharist, a bread. That's a symbol. It can be a symbol. Wine can be a symbol, can mean a lot of different things. Um, in modern life, the, the hammer and sickle is a symbol. It means something. It conveys something. The Nazi swastika is a symbol. Okay? Now, you can talk about Nazism in a very dispassionate way, and you can talk about it in a classroom setting, in communism, in Marxism. All these isms are abstractions. But when you have a picture of a Stuka dive bomber with, with that Nazi swastika on it, that conveys something more than the abstraction. It impacts your emotions as well as impacting your intellect. It gets people riled up. And that's what a symbol does. It conveys information, but, you, but also impacts the emotions. And that's why we use symbols all the time. That's why we have a national anthem. Troops go into battle uh, with, with slogans that oftentimes have to do with symbols. Remember the Alamo. The Alamo is a symbol of tyranny and a valiant resistance in the face of tyranny. Okay, so, you know, that's a symbol. The American flag is a symbol. The national anthem is a symbol. These things move us. They, they profoundly impact our emotions. Okay, so a symbol, like any other sign, is concrete. It's not abstract. And it has the ability to speak to the whole person, not just the intellect. Another thing about a symbol is it means more than one thing. It's not just conveying one little bit of information. It means a lot of things. Okay? Water is a symbol that can mean cleansing. It can mean death, like in the flood of Noah. If anyone's ever been in a flood, you know how water can mean death. It can mean life and spring. Uh, it, there's a lot of things that water can mean. Okay? Not just one thing. Same thing with fire. Same thing with the cross. The cross is a sign of human depravity, that God would come among us and we would crucify him and torture him to death. It's also a sign of God's love for us that would stop at nothing. It's a, it's a crossroads where heaven and earth come together and all people unite. You know, there's a lot of different meanings you can read out of that wonderful symbol of the cross. 
Okay, so we call that, the fancy word for, for multiple meanings is polyvalent. A symbol has, has many layers of meaning, like an onion. You can peel one layer back and go to another layer. Now, the, now you can see that a symbol is really a, a wonderful and powerful vehicle to talk about God because God's unlimited. And His love for us is unlimited. And His plan for us is mysterious. So symbols work great to convey things about God. So, that's, so we find God using symbols a lot in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? Let me say one last thing about the way in which Revelation happens. We've talked about symbol, and this, this, Revelation has a symbolic structure. Symbols are to be found everywhere. And we've talked about the fact that God, is, he, he drops to our level. That's why he uses symbol so often and sign and metaphor. But let me talk about a, a word that, um, that is called pedagogy. He, pedagogy comes from a, a, an actual institution. It's a symbolic word. In the ancient world, in the Greek world particularly, they, they have, had slaves oftentimes who were very highly educated, like Aesop from Aesop's Fables. Aesop was a slave who educated the master's children. So the slave would be called a pedagogue. It's a slave dedicated to the children. And his role was to supervise their education, to be their tutor, their mentor, their coach. And even though the master's child was a free person and going to inherit the master's uh, you know, estate and everything, while that child was a child, they were under the authority of the slave. The slave was a pedagogue, but it was a temporary thing. And so uh, there came a point at 18 or so, whatever, when that child reached the age of majority and the pedagogue no longer had authority over that child. Now, St. Paul uses this image in Galatians to talk about the Old Testament. And he says that the law is like a pedagogue, that God gave it temporarily to Israel, the actual literal Mosaic precepts, to keep Israel in check as it was maturing, as, as God was revealing himself gradually to Israel. But there came a time when Israel came of age, when Jesus came. And, and he explains that this is why the law no longer needs to be observed in its literal strictures, because it's, we're not children anymore. The master has come. The important point here is this little metaphor shows us something about Revelation. God, as a good educator, begins with Israel where it is. When, it, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, get to know the God uh, that is called Abraham, they are pagans. And it takes many, many hundreds of years for God to bring them to the place where they can hear there's only one God and the Ten Commandments. And then it takes many, many hundreds of years for things to happen, for Israel to, to realize many things and to be prepared for Christ to come. It wasn't even until a hundred years before Christ or so that people understood there was an afterlife. So God gradually revealed himself. But when Jesus came, revelation is complete. Jesus is the crown of all the prophets. There's no other prophet after him. Now see, this is some, something that other people don't believe. Islam believes Christ was a prophet, but they believe Muhammad is the greatest prophet. The Mormons believe there's another revelation after Christ. Okay? There was an early sect called the Montanists, which, which believed in, in revelation coming after Christ. But see, if Christ is God's final word, then everything that God has to say that we need to know is said in Christ. And after Christ, all we need to do is unpack it. We don't need any new revelation. That's a very, very important point about salvation history. Okay? So, there, you know, this is, this is critical. Are there private revelations to people? Yes, but no one is bound to believe them. 
There are many saints that get visions, many Christians that get visions and prophecies, and they oftentimes no more than repeat what God has already said in public revelation. So when you hear about Marian apparitions uh, around, many of them may, may be authentic. The church has many times uh, at least in some way helped us to recognize the legitimacy of a certain apparition. But there's never anything that any saint or any apparition of Jesus or Mary or anything would ever say that would be additional revelation beyond what we have received in Christ. Because in, in, in Christ, God has revealed his whole self to us. Everything in the future simply means making it more clear at this moment what we are called to do in light of the revelation, the full revelation of Christ. Okay, so this is a very important point that revelation is complete in him. And he is really the fullness of God's word. That's why we call Jesus the word of God with a capital W. And that's what our next class is going to be about revelation and the word of God. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.